This is Dr. Mike Green, Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at CSIS. Bonnie Glazer, who started the China Power Project and podcast at CSIS, has moved to an exciting new position at the German Marshall Fund, where she'll be running the Asia programs. And to recognize her work and prepare for our transition to a new director, we will be announcing that shortly, we're very pleased to have the best of the China Power podcasts for this episode. We're airing these to thank Bonnie and stay tuned because in a couple weeks we'll have a new director, some exciting new directions in how we do China Power and how we think about measuring and analyzing different aspects of China's power and China's role in the world. Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing developments in China's missile capabilities. Conventionally armed missiles have become an increasingly important component of military power. Today, China has the largest and most diverse land-based missile arsenal in the world. It's composed of modern, sophisticated ballistic and cruise missiles. And its advanced capabilities include maneuverable anti-ship ballistic missiles and hypersonic glide vehicles that could be used against a vast array of threats. In August 2019, the United States officially withdrew from the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia, which banned deployment of both conventional and nuclear ground-launched missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. So Russia's violations of the INF Treaty were one factor in the U.S. decision, but another crucial factor was China. 95% of China's missile inventory falls within the range banned under the INF Treaty. To talk about China's missile capabilities and their security implications, I'm joined by Ankit Panda. Ankit is the Stanton Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he's also editor-at-large at The Diplomat, where he hosts the Asia Geopolitics podcast and is a contributing editor at War on the Rocks. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ankit. My pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. So let's dig into this topic. China has been expanding its missile arsenal for years and, as I said, now has the largest missile force in the world. So why has China emphasized this particular military capability? China, if you look at a map, is very much a continental power. And the origins of Chinese military power, certainly going back to the Chinese Civil War and with the origins of the People's Republic in 1949, very much focused on terrestrial land-based capabilities with the People's Liberation Army. Missile capabilities in many ways augment this and provide China with important capabilities that allow it to adapt its military power projection capabilities to its expanding strategic ambitions, and certainly in the sense that those ambitions are expanding with regard to China's core interests, for instance, exercising control and unifying Taiwan, just to give one example. So if we look at the continental nature of Chinese power, China also perceives itself to be encircled by U.S. allies, many of whom host thousands of American troops and assets, namely Japan and South Korea, but also further away, countries like Australia and the Philippines, which hosts U.S. forces on a rotational basis. Now, to preserve its ability to project force into its near seas, most notably within the first island chain, Beijing needs force multipliers. Its missile forces, ballistic, cruise, and anti-ship, I think, are critical components of this. 
Missiles by themselves cannot hold territory, but they can soften hard targets and neutralize soft targets, making the projection of American and allied military power difficult in this theater and allow China, which also has a largely um, fast-expanding navy and air force, it gives China more room for maneuver. And finally, uh, I know we're talking mostly about conventional missiles, but given its no-first-use nuclear policy and relatively small nuclear forces, Beijing has primarily built up a large conventional missile force focusing on precision of late. But these missiles are also well-tested. According to the Pentagon in 2019, China conducted more ballistic missile tests than the entire rest of the world combined. So this is a central capability. It is credible. It is capable. Uh, and the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force, formerly the Second Artillery Corps until 2015, plays a central part in Chinese regional warfighting plans. So how would you describe the overall shift in composition of this missile arsenal? And then what does that tell you about how China views its threats in the region? I think uh, a sensible way to talk about the composition of the People's Liberation Army Rocket Forces inventory perhaps is by range. So over time, China has been gradually expanding the range of its ballistic missile capabilities. Uh, beginning in the Cold War, China focused mostly on fairly imprecise short-range ballistic missiles, which could hold Taiwan at stake, but couldn't really reach other significant targets in the region. And like I just said, American bases in Japan, uh, U.S. forward operating bases, even on U.S. territory like Guam, have become a priority of late. And as you said in the introduction, uh, China has also been developing uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles and hypersonic boost glide systems as well. And these systems have different roles to play. Anti-ship missiles contribute to that overall mission of degrading the American room for maneuver in the Indo-Pacific region. And boost glide missiles, by contrast, stress missile defenses, which the United States does deploy in East Asia in a limited capacity. So over time, we have been seeing China develop a larger arsenal of ballistic and cruise missiles with longer ranges. The strategic deterrence mission was a focus early on. China tested its first nuclear device in 1964 and constituted the Second Artillery Corps in 1966. And by the 1980s, China had developed an intercontinental range ballistic missile capability to hold the U.S. homeland at stake. But when it comes to the warfighting missile force, a lot of the developments there have been really advancing over the last 30 years or so. Today, China has an arsenal encompassing some 2,000 ballistic and cruise missiles with ranges from all the way at the short end intended to hold targets in the first island chain at risk, all the way up to longer range, intermediate range ballistic missiles capable of ranging Guam. The PLA is also exploring new types of basing modes. The U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency has publicized that China is pursuing the development of two air-launched ballistic missiles. These are in an exotic basing mode, I would say, where a ballistic missile is carried by an H-6 strategic bomber and dropped from the air. And some of this has to do with Chinese concerns about the survivability, not only of its nuclear forces, but also to some extent of its conventional forces. So we talked a little bit about these anti-ship ballistic missiles and the DF-21D, I think, was the first. And people have dubbed these carrier killers. Have these missiles been tested against moving carriers? And how confident do you think China is and do you think the United States is that they would actually work? And then extending that a little bit, how does this fit into this overall anti-access area denial or A2AD strategy? We see a lot of headlines in the English language press talking about these carrier killer missiles. Last year, uh, 2019, uh, to my knowledge, was the first time that China actually tested the DF-21D over open ocean. Uh, they tested some of these missiles, I believe two or three, uh, into the South China Sea. Uh, and to my knowledge, based on at least what was reported in the open source, there was no confirmation that the reentry vehicles of these missiles targeted moving ships or, or any ships at all. They may have simply splashed down. 
Prior to this, China has mostly been conducting testing of the DF-21D and its standard missile testing range in western China, with most of that testing taking place over open land. The challenge of striking a moving target at sea is not a trivial one. Uh, not only does it require the missile's re-entry vehicle to maneuver, and this is a missile that is re-entering the Earth's atmosphere at breakneck speeds, uh, certainly hypersonic speeds. We can talk a little bit about how the words hypersonic uh, get a little bit misused in the context of new systems, but even ballistic missiles travel at hypersonic speeds and have for decades now. And because of this fast speed of re-entry, the re-entry vehicle would need to be provided with some very good information from sensors indicating where the position of a U.S. aircraft carrier, which is not a static asset under many conditions, uh, carriers are designed to move around, it needs to be able to zone in on that carrier and conduct a precision strike, especially if using a conventional warhead. A, a nuclear anti-ship missile has a little bit of an easier task, uh, just given the sheer explosive force of a nuclear weapon, which can cover a larger swath of territory. But because China has that no-first-use posture, uh, it would not look to use nuclear weapons first under most circumstances. The question of whether this system works is, I think, difficult to answer uh, in the open source. We have never seen footage, for instance, out of China of a DF-21D successfully striking a moving warship, uh, but we know at least from the few statements that have come out on the record on the DF-21D from official U.S. sources that this is a capability that the U.S. Navy takes very seriously. The way I like to think about the DF-21D and its role in strategic competition between the U.S. and China is sort of similarly to how the Chinese view American missile defenses, right? Our, our homeland missile defense systems aren't particularly effective, at least, you know, you know, we're a democracy, we have good data on test information. We know that roughly half the time that we've tested homeland missile defense interceptors, they have failed. We don't have that same data from China, but it's interesting that China continues to view our missile defense capabilities as effectively a perfect shield against all ballistic missiles, and we view their anti-ship ballistic missiles similarly as a threat that very much does work. And I think that's a sensible basis on which to plan. But I will uh, say for listeners that this is still, I think, an open question, and I think we do need more data to fully ascertain the ability of the DF-21D, and there's actually an anti-ship variant of the DF-26 intermediate-range ballistic missile as well. We need to know a little bit more about exactly uh, how these missiles perform under real-world conditions. At the top of the podcast, I mentioned U.S. withdrawal from the INF Treaty, and that obviously opens up at least options for the United States going forward to deploy ground-based intermediate-range ballistic missiles in the region. Of course, this depends on the willingness of countries to have them deployed on their territories, and and that's uncertain. That's a political question that we don't need to get into, but maybe you can just talk about how deployment of intermediate-range ballistic missiles would alter the military balance in the region if the U.S. were to deploy them. And what do you think the U.S. should do now that it's withdrawn from the INF Treaty to alter the disadvantage that exists in the conventional missile balance? The INF Treaty was a bilateral agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union, and eventually successor states of the Soviet Union, including the Russian Federation, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. And China was never hindered by this treaty. So over the lifespan of this treaty, the 32-year lifespan between 1987 and 2019, August 2019 specifically, when the U.S. withdrew, China amassed this massive missile arsenal that I just described. So this has been a longstanding concern in 2017, before the U.S. withdrew from the INF Treaty. Former PACOM commander Admiral Harry Harris testified to this constraint, specifying that 95% of the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force's missile arsenal would have violated the INF Treaty if China were a signatory. Uh, So now the United States has no hindrance in this area. But of course, we need to be realistic about a few things, I think. So the first is the geography of the Indo-Pacific region. I talked a little bit about how China is a continental power, but then on the flip side, if we look at what the United States is really working with, I mean, we have 60 million square kilometers of ocean in the Pacific. We have allies, uh, an important force multiplier for the United States in many ways. 
But as you hinted, Bonnie, the political challenge of getting these allies to agree to host road mobile American missile systems that are under development, unencumbered by the INF Treaty, is far from straightforward. Last November, I was actually uh, in Tokyo with a mission to actually interrogate this specific question in the context of the U.S.-Japan alliance. And while I think that there are many interlocutors that I met with in Tokyo who would have loved to see such a capability introduced by the United States to the region, they were quite open about the political challenges, certainly in Japan, but also around the region. What would such capabilities bring to the table for the United States? Uh, we hear a lot about anti-access area denial being practiced by China. And, and in effect, that means that China denies the United States the kind of freedom of maneuver we would like for our military forces in a conflict. Uh, we would likely have a difficult time uh, maneuvering freely in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, uh, even parts of the Western Pacific, uh, which the People's Liberation Army, Air Force, and Navy have been devoting particular attention to in the last four or five years. An American missile capability, all of these missiles, by the way, that are under development are all conventional. The United States is not pursuing any uh, nuclear-capable INF systems. And of course, the INF Treaty was primarily a basing mode treaty that focused on ground-based systems. Air-launched and sea-launched systems have never been restricted for the United States, so this is primarily what we've been operating in the Indo-Pacific. So if we had these kinds of capabilities, if the U.S. Marine Corps, for instance, had anti-ship missiles, let's say hypothetically based in Okinawa, and we had a 3,000 to 4,000 kilometer range uh, long-range hypersonic missile based out of Guam, for instance, the United States in turn would be able to effectively practice deterrence by denial, anti-access of its own against the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy of a sort. We would have the capability to then impose costs on China by complicating the PLA rocket force's planning. Uh, instead of allowing the PLA rocket force to devote all of its resources to holding American bases at risk, for instance, in Japan and Guam, the United States would then have these capabilities to hold Chinese facilities at risk and, and basically increase the costs for China to undertake an offensive, uh, hypothetically, across the Taiwan Strait. And there are other advantages. Uh, for instance, uh, the United States has ship-based missiles. We have uh, destroyers in the Indo-Pacific that are all over the place. These destroyers don't have the ability to reload when they're at sea, so they have a limited magazine depth. And if we have land-based missile systems, that would be less of a constraint. There's also the promptness argument that these missile systems would be survivable, they would be prompt, so early in a crisis, they would be highly responsive. But of course, that political hurdle is significant. So we can have the discussion about the strategic advantages, but if we can't get our allies, and none of our allies have so far indicated a willingness to host these systems, if we can't get our allies to agree to host them, then it's really a little bit of a moot conversation. Where I think the lowest hanging fruit is for the United States is anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, which I think Japan could potentially agree to host, even though that would still be politically difficult. Where I think things would get very difficult would be for uh, longer range strike systems that might allow the United States to hold targets deep inside China risk. That would be something that I think our allies would be rather hesitant to explore. Uh, and of course, there's precedent for why this might be the case. Uh, for instance, the 2016 uh, deployment decision with South Korea to deploy a missile defense system uh, on South Korean soil was met with unofficial sanctions by China that were uh, devastating for the South Korean economy, for instance. So other allies, I think, are becoming more attuned to China's methods of retaliating through economic means, uh, which means that even if these systems have benefits in a crisis or in wartime, uh, the peacetime consequences might not be something that our allies will find worthwhile. So let's drill down a little bit on Taiwan, which I think is still the most likely flashpoint between the United States and China that could escalate to a broader military conflict. In 1995 and 96, China fired missiles near Taiwan, and at that time, the PLA had limited capabilities, so it could only use missiles to warn and intimidate, or potentially, of course, destroy Taiwan by launching nuclear-tipped missiles at the island. 
Of course, they could have used conventional missiles just to take out specific targets as well, but they didn't actually hit anything that was on Taiwan. Fast forward several decades, China now has a vast array of capabilities. How do you think China's thinking about the role of missiles in the Taiwan contingency has changed now that China has other capabilities? And of course, its missiles are also far more accurate than they were in the mid-90s. I think the People's Liberation Army rocket force will play a central role in a limited Taiwan war and, and certainly an unlimited conflict for Taiwan where the United States may be involved. As I said earlier, missiles can't help China or any country really hold territory, uh, but they can facilitate something like an amphibious invasion uh, by degrading, let's say, uh, Taiwanese command and control nodes and other fixed targets, both hard and soft, across the island. Uh, similarly, if the United States were to choose to enter a Taiwan Strait conflict early, China's longer-range missile capabilities can significantly degrade our ability to position forces to come to Taiwan's aid, leaving Taipei on its own effectively until we're then able to move assets from further away in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, perhaps even as far as the U.S. West Coast. I think something Chinese strategists have studied is how the United States prosecutes expeditionary wars, and I think they understand that logistics and resupply are the most important vulnerability. U.S. facilities at Guam, Yokosuka Naval Base in Japan, and other significant facilities around the region, if these can be struck early, we would effectively be quite hindered in our ability to respond. We might have a few aircraft carriers in the Pacific, but as we just discussed, anti-ship ballistic missiles might present a challenge there in terms of bringing that carrier close enough where the fighters on those carrier air wings might actually be able to usefully contribute to the defense of Taiwan. So the Taiwanese, of course, are aware of all of this and are undertaking investments of their own to hopefully buy time that even if the worst happens and the U.S. is either politically paralyzed in its ability to respond or just practically paralyzed after having been struck by these Chinese missiles, that Taiwan can hold out until the United States can respond. But certainly, this is a major way in which I think since the Taiwan Straits crisis in the 1990s that the situation has, I think, changed dramatically for the worse. Uh, and uh, this is something that I think the United States and Taiwan are focusing on quite a bit. Uh, we've seen recent authorization of arms sales, for instance, by the Trump administration to help Taiwan autonomously manage this challenge, even if the United States is in the process of adjusting its posture in Asia to better cope with these threats. Several of China's missiles are dual capable, so they can carry either nuclear or conventional warheads, which I understand is not very common. And some of its newer missiles are hot swappable, meaning that they can quickly switch warhead types. Can you talk about what the implications are for deterrence and potential escalation of these kinds of capabilities being either dual capable or hot swappable? So I think it's worth, first of all, clarifying the difference between dual-capable and hot-swappable. So a dual-capable system, the DF-21 family is a good one. You have uh, conventional DF-21 units, and you have nuclear DF-21 units, and then you have the anti-ship DF-21 units. So these are separate units that are operated by separate PLA rocket force operators, uh, and they exercise separately, but they are all effectively based on the same underlying missile technology. The DF-26, however, is the most interesting system, I think, in many ways in the entire uh, PLA rocket force in some ways. It is, as you said, Bonnie, hot swappable, and uh, DOD actually talks uh, at length about this in the latest China military power report, confirming that the DF-26 is capable of rapidly rapidly swapping conventional and nuclear warheads. And what that means is that every DF-26 brigade in the rocket force simultaneously has to be assumed by American planners to be a nuclear and conventional unit. And that presents, I think, particular challenges for escalation for our side, right? Uh, so 
let's say hypothetically uh, in a conflict the united states has some post inf precision strike systems like the long-range hypersonic weapon and one of the ways in which we decide that it would be a sensible to employ the system to defend taiwan or other allies would be to perhaps take out some df-26s uh, based in china now the problem with that is because these are hot swappable systems that are effectively conventional and nuclear at the same time, undertaking such a strike to leaders in Beijing may indicate the beginning of a strike by the United States to deprive China of its entire strategic nuclear force. And that's where you start getting into escalation pressures. Uh, so I talked a little bit about how China has a no first use policy. But to my knowledge, I mean, Chinese experts and uh, even officials in uh, track two, track 1.5 settings always sort of dance around this question about what exactly might happen if the United States actually began to take out certain Chinese nuclear capable systems uh, like the DF-26. Would that meet the threshold for China to then escalate to the nuclear level? And this ambiguity, I think, for China augments deterrence in an important way. Uh, this is something uh, DOD planners have been grappling with, is will we invite inadvertent escalation to the nuclear level by taking out DF-26 units? And so this system, I think, presents particular challenges for planning. I don't think there's an easy fix for this. Even if we had high-resolution satellite imagery monitoring DF-26 brigades conducting operations, there'd be no way to know the moment at which a specific DF-26 launcher had been converted from conventional to nuclear. Clear. So it's this flexibility that I think contributes quite significantly to uh, China's ability to get the United States to really think twice about undertaking any kinds of these strikes. And that leaves the DF-26 then more survivable, more responsive, leaving the U.S. territory of Guam at risk. Uh, so this is really, I think, an important development uh, that does merit greater focus. You've mentioned the hypersonic glide vehicle several times. Maybe you could explain a bit about what it is and whether it can be defended against and maybe talk a little bit about where missile capabilities might be going in the future. What What's the next big thing we should be looking for in missile capabilities that China might be defending, or maybe even capabilities to defend against what China is developing? Where conventional ballistic missiles involve a rocket booster with a re-entry vehicle on top, let's take the DF-26 for example, the rocket booster flies out of the Earth's atmosphere, propelling the re-entry vehicle on basically a parabolic trajectory. So it's a simple ballistic trajectory, gravity does most of the work, in the case of the DF-26 specifically, uh, the re-entry vehicle can maneuver. Where a hypersonic glide vehicle equipped system, uh, let's use the DF-27, which is China's first probably operationally deployed HGV, or where the DF-17 defers is that it uses that same rocket booster, but the payload on top isn't a traditional re-entry vehicle. It's what's called a hypersonic boost glide vehicle. So after being lifted out of the Earth's atmosphere to great heights, this re-entry vehicle immediately begins to descend, taking that potential energy of that descent. And then as it enters the Earth's atmosphere, it enters an unpowered period of flight as it glides, and it glides on its own shock waves uh, reaching hypersonic speeds, hypersonic speeds being defined as in excess of Mach 5, but the DF-17 uh, likely gets to uh, Mach 10 plus. Uh, longer range hypersonic glide vehicles uh, under development in China, and uh, there's one such system currently deployed in Russia, can reach speeds of up to Mach 20. Uh, but what I really want to emphasize is that even though hypersonic glide vehicles are often described as an emerging technology in strategic competition, the technology underpinning the principles of their flight has been understood since the first half of the 20th century. The only reason these systems are now becoming something that we talk about quite a bit is, first of all, material science has advanced to the point where producing these systems and deploying them is feasible. 
from any countries. And secondly, and, and here's the strategic explanation for why I think China is pursuing a system like the DF-17, it's the security dilemma, which is that China looks around the region and it sees the United States deploying missile defense systems that it assumes will work quite well. Uh, the record of American missile defense systems is patchy, but in general, theater-range missile defense systems like the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System in South Korea, Patriot Advanced Capability 3 in Japan, uh, and other systems, including uh, Aegis Ballistic Missile Defense, are all quite capable systems. Um, and because China relies on this missile arsenal, it needs to assure itself that in a conflict, it will have the ability to penetrate American missile defenses and destroy critical command and control nodes, uh, Yokosuka, or what have you. And the DF-17, I think, plays a role there. It gives the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force assurances that this system will be able to penetrate. Uh, the DF-17, though, still appears to be something of a niche capability in the overall Chinese rocket force. The explanations for this, I think, are various. Uh, one, perhaps, being that cost for cost, uh, you know, yuan for yuan, it's more cost-effective to simply develop more DF-16s and DF-21s than it is to invest in this exotic hypersonic glide vehicle system. But longer term, I think there, uh, you know, we should be concerned about China potentially developing uh, conventional intercontinental range gliders. Uh, we don't have indicators that China is working on this right now, but if they were to develop something like this, I think that would would be seriously concerning for strategic stability between the U.S. and China. For instance, that may give China a capability to strike U.S. homeland-based capabilities, including missile defense installations or even command and control installations, which would potentially even threaten our nuclear deterrent. So this is a concerning development. It shortens decision-making times, but I think it's important to understand the reasons why China would choose to invest in something like this. We are very much seeing the security dilemma at work in the Asia-Pacific today, and I think the DF-17 uh, is an important manifestation of that. Of course, the United States is also conducting all sorts of research and development work on multiple hypersonic systems, uh, so I think hypersonics are here to stay, and ultimately we'll have to see if arms control or similar cooperative arrangements can be reached to mitigate the worst risks that arise from the uh, deployment of such systems. Well, thanks for a fantastic conversation on China's missile inventory and the overall military balance and how missiles uh, fit into them. Really appreciate you coming on the China Power podcast. I'll just remind our audience, Ankit Panda, the Stanton Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks again. Thank you, Bonnie. After this podcast was recorded, Indo-PACOM Commander Admiral Phil Davidson confirmed that over the summer, the PLA tested an anti-ship ballistic missile against a moving target. He did not confirm whether that test was successful. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of the China Power Podcast. We'll be releasing new episodes under a new director in a few weeks, so please... Stay with us. We appreciate your patience and your support.